Well, here it is. We are at the end of April, and it's time to go inside EMS for another great show. I want to thank everybody out there who's been listening. Those numbers keep ticking up, and we really appreciate your comments. We really appreciate everyone really just, you know, being part of this show, and we consider you all to be part of this show. And here's a guy that has been part of this show with me from the very beginning, going way back to the Stone Age. Our good friend, Kelly Grayson, KG, how the heck are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing well, man, as well as can be considered, uh, the, uh, the, the trials and, and tribulations of being a homeowner are, are catching up with me. I, I almost ripped two fingers off the other day. Oh my goodness. What happened? <laughs> I was putting in a door and, uh, I'll preface this by saying I'm not a carpenter, <laughs> but I okay. was replacing my, my back door and it was never more apparent that I'm not a carpenter than when I was doing that. I uh, was play, putting the, the new door and frame in the rough opening and my house, uh, the back of my house is, is probably four feet off the ground. And uh, uh, before I got the doorway, uh, the, the door frame tacked into the rough opening, uh, it started to tip over and fall out of the frame. And I was afraid that I was going to bust my, my $500 door uh, on the ground. So I went to grab it and uh, the it's a steel case door. So, uh, the casing caught my index and ring fingers and pretty much evulsed the tips of them. I, I had to have, uh, had to have 10 plus stitches on one finger and several stitches on the other to, to make sure that my finger stayed on. And we're, mm. <laughs> we're, we're gonna, we're gonna see if the repair holds in a couple of days. It it's, it's looking good. No infection so far, but man, it is ugly to look at there. Uh, uh, yeah. I don't know if I'll be able to, to swing a golf club in, in less than a week, but I hope so. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, driving the golf course, golf carts just as important. But let me ask you this question. I mean, <laughs> you know, you and I, we're, you know, we're practiced professionals, I think, in the EMS mm -hmm. field. And we come across this all the time where people are getting hurt. And here's something that I always wanted to ask, but I, I never really, uh, I guess, had the nerve to ask somebody this. But when this happened to you, how many colorful swear words did you use? Uh, I used a few. Okay. I used a few because I, I Nancy is, is a uh, is consummate EMS professional, but she when I snap at her, uh, she goes to pieces. Um, and, and that's, a that's one of those relationship things where, um, all those, uh, all the, that training and those, those, uh, those instincts go out the window when you mix in the, the relationship interpersonal dynamics. And I was like, I, I let loose a few choice swear words and said, quick, go, you know, I'm, I'm cut bad. Go, go get me a, she, what, 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 go get me what, you know? And I, I snapped at her. It was, was a, a little bit more terse than I should have been. And, uh, um, there might've been some swear words there while she was looking for, uh, for, to get me something while she's bleeding all over my newly installed tile. And, <laughs> Uh, it was a arterial spatter on the on the wall and and all this kind of stuff. It's pretty bad stuff, but uh, yeah, well, our, uh, our relationship survived it. Hopefully, <laughs> well, you are. Uh, I mean, you know, accidents are accidents, right? I mean, it's just good yeah. that you uh, you know, one, you were able to take care of yourself until you can get more definitive care. But yeah, you know, I hope it doesn't affect your ability to do your job, man. I mean, is there thought about that? Well, uh, I had to, uh, you know, I, I was 
since it's on the ventral surface of my hand, uh, the stitches are going to be in place for at least 10 days. There's no way I can work with, uh, with coverings on my fingers and, and, uh, and, and getting, uh, and, and unable to, uh, grasp things fully with my left hand. So, uh, I had to take three days of sick leave off of work. Uh, but I'm, uh, starting uh, Tuesday of next week, I'll be in Glen Falls, New York at the initial assessment conference for a week. So hopefully two weeks off of work, uh, I'll be, I'll be back and, and fit as a fiddle. Um, until then I'm having to farm out, uh, the patting myself on the back to other people. Finding any takers for that? Uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, Nancy's reluctant. She, she, she'd rather, uh, pound me on the back than pat me on the back, but, uh, she's, mm -hmm. she's, she's doing a, a, a good job filling in. All right. Good. That's good to know. So the EMS world tour continues, even though you're not able to, uh, mm -hmm. stamp out disease and pestilence. So what are you going to be talking about up there? Give us, give us one of your topics and let's talk about that on this show. I'm, I'm doing a, yeah, I, I'm doing a few, uh, I, I'm actually doing like six talks up there. Uh, at the initial assessment conference from uh, sponsored by the Mountain Lakes Regional EMS Council. And uh, normally they have this conference in, in Lake Placid, New York at the Olympic uh, uh, Event Center. Um, gorgeous and, and a great venue. But uh, that, that coronavirus has, has nicked that. Um, so we're having it at a, uh, at a resort hotel in Glen Falls, New York. I'm looking forward to experiencing more of upstate New York, but, um, a couple of the, the talks I'm giving are about, uh, um, hopefully blurring the lines between BLS and ALS. One of them is called putting it all together, integrating clinical and technological assessment. And the other one poses the question, just how vital are vital signs? Uh, because people tend to, particularly BLS providers, tend to get hung up on minutia about things, and they they over they they tend to ignore the overall uh, uh, holistic view of the patient. And sometimes, you know, they, they focus way too much on numbers when other things are uh, are are obvious to tell them what is wrong with the patient, how critically ill they are, even without vital signs, and. Uh, and all too many EMTs um, are taught or, or in practice feel like there is, there is some ceiling on their knowledge or their assessment of the patient. And, uh, and I hope to dispel that and, uh, and keep them uh, or help them uh, be more efficient providers and, and uh, teach them that uh, there's no such thing as a, an, uh, an ALS assessment or a BLS assessment. There's just assessment. Uh, and teach the paramedics not to be over-reliant on technology uh, and that sort of thing. So that's what we do in these things, you know, yeah. that's that, uh, um, kind of putting the whole thing together and, and uh, dispelling some, some myths and lies and rumors um, that, uh, that we... Uh, where the heck did you go? Where, where, did you, where did you go? You can't... Don't, don't step away from the microphone in the middle of this show. Get, my, get back here. Get back my, over uh, here. My... my, my uh, my dear uh, loved one is is wandering around the house looking for for uh, her keys while she's getting ready to uh, go to town and, and take care of some business. So uh, I was yeah, turned around. Geez. I mean, I thought, like, you know, I don't know where your keys are. I'm I've, I'm <laughs> very, very I'm very, very hurt that you would just move away in the middle of that. But uh, I'll, I'll get you to I'll, I'll forgive you here in a minute. But, you know, Kelly, one of the things I think you bring up a good point is you know, the numbers that we get, the information that we get from diagnostics, 
we are we are not really you know in the days of training emts and paramedics you know you hear it often and you and i were talking about this before we started you know treat the patient not the monitor Mm -hmm. um we we are in a reactionary mode when we see high blood pressure we're we're looking at the blood pressure when we see low blood pressure we're looking at the blood pressure but we're not getting into the symptoms and the signs and the presentation mm-hmm. of the patient to make the determination of what's causing those high low blood yeah. pressures numbers and instead we wind up treating the numbers and this is a really this is a shotgun approach to being an EMS provider and what yeah. do you think you know before we get into that process i mean and i think it really comes down to experience i don't want to know that i've got to treat a 210 over you know 98 i want to know why it's 210 over 98 mm-hmm. and then hopefully i can reverse that process or you know the same thing i mean there are things that we can treat when we have a blood sugar of 14 we know how we can reverse that. We know why it's yeah. happening and we know what we have to do. But, you know, th- this is a horrible approach to say they're hypoglycemic. Uh, you know, they're hypotensive. I'm going to give them a fluid bolus and hopefully that's going to bring it up. You know what? There's a lot more things going on inside the body than then just giving them, you know, 500 milliliters of fluid. Yeah, yeah, most certainly is. And, and, and some of these, you know, I talk about uh, more effective and accurate vital signs parameters like, like mean arterial pressure rather than systolic pressure and, and the, the importance of context in evaluating vital signs. Because, you, you know, you, you see a patient with a blood pressure of 90 over 60 uh, and, and many, you know, many EMTs will, will start to, to get worried because the blood pressure is less than 100 systolic. But 90 over 60 in a, in a uh, 90-pound grandma is a different story ent- entirely than 90 over 60 in, in a 250-pound man uh, who, who has some, some uh, difficulty breathing and weakness and dizziness and that sort of thing. You say, uh, treat the patient, not the monitor, and, and I hate that cliche. Uh, but, but cliches become cliches because they have a, a, an element of truth to them. Um, the problem is, is when all too many paramedics these days say treat the patient, not the monitor. And what they mean is, is I don't understand those squiggly lines on the monitor and I'm not quite sure what to call that rhythm. Uh, and, and they, they, um, use that, that lack of, uh, of, uh, understanding the technology or the context of, of that particular rhythm to, uh, to, um, defaulting to, to clinical assessment rather than technological. Uh, or vice versa. You have some people that do the shotgun approach to assessment and they do every test known to man uh, or every test available in their arsenal on a patient, regardless of whether they need it or it's indicated or not. That's a lot um, of the way, a lot of way the ER doctors work too. Well, yeah. And, and that the, the way the ER doctors do it is the problem with that is it's defensive medicine. Uh, it, it's not indicated. Now, Nancy and I have gone around uh, around the Maypole on this a number of times in regards to blood sugar, because she looks at checking a glucose as an advocacy thing and, and, a, and a patient wellness thing, because uh, a, a great many diabetics out there are undiagnosed. Uh, they There is estimate that the undiagnosed diabetics out, uh, outnumber the diabetic ones three to one. So in the context of, uh, you know, a patient who has uh, just general illness symptoms, they feel unwell, fatigued, tired, uh, uh, run down, that sort of thing, 
they may be an undiagnosed diabetic. They may be in the, in hyperglycemic and in the beginning stages of DKA. We, we don't know. Uh, so she advocates taking uh, and teaches all our students check a blood sugar whenever whenever possible. Uh, and and my uh, I'm starting to come around on that. But my my instinct has always been, if if a particular diagnostic test is not going to change your your outlook of the patient or it's not going to influence your treatment in any way, why do it? So uh, that's one of those things. You know, if I've got a patient who is a, a trauma patient and and there's no point in putting the cardiac monitor on them unless there is a reason to put the cardiac monitor on them. You know, I expect thoracic involvement, uh, some thoracic injuries that may affect their their uh, uh, cardiac output and, and uh, or maybe myocardial contusion, contusion, that sort of thing. I don't do that. You know, uh, why start an IV if the only reason I'm starting IV is so that the emergency department nurses won't, won't give me the stink eye. Um, so that's the approach we take with these things. But one of the one of the things that I, I always run into when I when I have first responders on the scene is often they're focused on things that are irrelevant to patient care. You walk in and everyone is is freaked out about uh, uh, a set of vital signs, and the patient is asymptomatic. You know, well, you get there, oh, her blood pressure's two forty over one twenty. She's fitting the stroke out. Uh, or the patient's family members have monitored their blood pressure and they'll call 911 for that very reason. And you get there and granny is, is sitting on the couch, calm, uh, asymptomatic. She feels fine. She was surprised as anyone to not learn that her blood pressure was 240 over 120. And that's when you, you know, you, you explain context to people and that there is uh, the, the myth of a stroke level blood pressure. And he explained to people, said, guys, you know, we're not, we're not trying to make people normotensive uh, in the field. Uh, in fact, they don't try to make them normotensive in the emergency department if they come in with a blood pressure like that. Generally, they, they give the patient a clonidine and, and, and have them uh, undergo some fluorescent light therapy and tincture of time until their blood pressure is less than 189 over 109 which is a total arbitrary number based on, on the, the blood pressure threshold for administering thrombolytic agents for stroke. Uh, and that's defensive medicine at its finest. But because that blood pressure is not something to be managed in the ambulance or in the emergency department, uh, there is no such thing as a stroke-level blood pressure. There is the risk of a stroke with chronic untreated high blood pressure, and that is best treated by the patient's primary care physician who knows all their history. You know, so the, those are the kind of nuances that I, I go through yeah, I don't know, in these man. classes. I do know. I do know. Come on. Come on. You've been riding a desk for too long, Sevalero. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can kiss my posterior part of my body. So, um, you know, but when you think about this from your standpoint, I think that, that you bring up some good points, but I think there are, I think that there are considerations that you have to be able to take when you see a 240 over, you know, 102 blood pressure, right? And we don't, we have to be able to have great assessment skills to make the determination as to why that blood pressure is happening. And we may need to intervene. I don't know that I agree with you when you say, 
that high blood pressure or low blood pressure isn't a manageable condition in an ambulance because i think that there could be reasons why the blood pressure is this way and i think that there are things that we can do to help manage that blood pressure whether it's high or whether it's low one of the things that you said though that was really interesting was just putting people on the monitor for the sake of putting people on the monitor Mm -hmm. and i i think that that's true but it made me think about my style of assessment and sometimes i've used the cardiac monitor for the comfort of the patient and not really that it was needed for my assessment skill at that time. So, I mean, when you speak, give me your opinion about that. When you speak to something like that, should we be using our, because sometimes we don't do enough for these patients, right? Sometimes they're scared and sometimes they're stressed. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I can't count the number of times people have asked me to hold their hand in an ambulance because of their uncertainty. I mean, when it comes to things like that, I mean, should we think about doing everything that we can, regardless of if it's going to give us any positive information or not? I, I, you know, everyone has a different style of, of patient care and, and how to develop patient rapport. And if that works for you, great. That that's fine. I don't I don't have a problem with you doing that. Uh, that's just not my style. You know, if I've got a patient who is complaining of chest tightness um, and and uh, difficulty breathing. Uh, the knee-jerk response would be, okay, let's work her up for cardiac and see if she's having an MI. Uh, But she's 19 years old. Uh, She has absolutely no health issues. Her blood pressure is 120 over 80. Her heart rate's 120. And her respiratory rate is 50 with a CO2 of 20. And she's got carpopedal spasms. Okay, What she doesn't need is me putting on my serious paramedic face uh, and, and putting cardiac monitor electrodes all over her chest and moving her shirt and her bra out of the way and, and all this kind of business. What she needs is, is kindly Uncle Kelly paramedic uh, to give her some gentle speech and turn down the lights in the ambulance and coach her through slowing down her breathing and relieving her hyperventilation syndrome. So that, you know, uh, um, putting a cardiac monitor on or doing a 12-lead EKG, um, it is not something that she needs right now. Now, my protocols may actually require me to uh, obtain a, a 12 lead EKG uh, if I code this as a chest pain or if it was dispatched as a chest pain. Well, that's fine, but I can do that after the patient has calmed down and and the act of ob- obtaining that 12 lead EKG and putting all those monitor electrodes on her won't freak her out even more. Um, and, and that the, the calming them down and the coaching of their breathing takes precedence over gathering more clinical information. And, and that's the, you know, <clears throat> Chris, you know, as well as I do that, and you worked at EMS long enough that to have developed a, a pretty accurate look test, you know, I guarantee you without ever having actually run a call uh, with you that you can walk in a room and you can tell just how sick a patient is with a look from 10 feet away. Would you agree with me? I do. I do agree with you. I think that that is part of the initial assessment. And, yeah, you know, yeah. one of the it's things. It's not the only it, picture. It, but. No, but that's what we're taught, man. As yeah. we're walking up to the patient, it's part of that scene size up. And, you know, one of the things that we don't talk enough about pediatric patients, one of the things that I teach in my classes oh, yeah. is the does the kid look sick or not sick? You know, we have a little bit of time with those patients, but when we think about the compensation of a pediatric patient, we got to move a lot faster in that case. 
Yeah, and 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 the fact that that in most pediatric patients, and that, and funny thing, that's another thing I'm lecturing on at the uh, initial assessment contact, uh, uh, conference: uh, pediatric pucker factor. Um, and and I, I heavily emphasize the look test because when you start assessing a pediatric patient with with stranger and separation anxiety, your assessment alters their baseline significantly you know so the best information you get uh acuity wise and and to a great extent uh, what body system is causing a problem is gained in that momentary pause in the doorway 10 feet away for for five to ten seconds uh before you start putting your hands on the patient but you know my point i was i was getting to is is, is in the most critical situations uh, and the patient is is has the most critical time sen- uh, time sensitive emergencies. You really don't have to know what the vital signs are. You just have to know what the vital signs aren't. Uh, what do you mean by that? Because when a patient is truly critically ill or injured, there are plenty of clinical signs to tell you so without relying on numbers and technology. You don't need a blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope. Uh, and a glucometer and a pulse oximeter to let you know that the patient is circling the drain. And when the patient is circling the drain, uh, stabilizing interventions take precedence over, over gathering numbers for your PCR. Uh, that's, you know, if you've got a patient who is, who is shocky and, and needs uh, hemodynamic stabilization, you can tell that without a blood pressure uh, or a pulse rate. You can look at them and tell that they are extremely ill. Uh, you know, obviously that that's not 100% cut and dried and blood pressure, pulse, respirations, vital signs are a critical part of the picture, but do they need to be a part of the picture uh, early on or can you get your, your, um, your stabilizing interventions in place? When you got a patient who is critically hypoxic, uh, and, and has exaggerated air hunger because they're in acute pulmonary edema. You can tell that when you walk in the room and you don't need a blood pressure and a pulse ox and a 12 lead EKG to tell you that that patient needs high flow oxygen and CPAP uh, and possibly great big uh, heaping doses of nitrates to, to turn them around. Uh, but, I'm going to get, that, again, I'm gonna get that blood pressure before I give those nitrates. But, but you know I'm what? Is, don't you, what? But don't you think you need to do that, though? How many, how many, uh, have you ever bottomed, you have you ever bottomed the blood pressure out before you, you know, when you gave those nitrates? Well, but here's the, but here's the that's question. That's what I was I saying. Know. I will get the blood pressure before I give the nitrates. But it's one, uh, am I going to mess around? And when I've got a patient who is, who is, you know, showing signs of, of, of severe hypoxia, uh, Am I, is it that important to get the room air saturation before you administer oxygen? That sort of thing. You know what? You're going to flip the coin there because I think that you need to be able to have a baseline to know where they started. Because if you're going to go into the emergency room to give a report, when you go in there and you see someone's got 89% and you tell them that that was the room air sat, and then as soon as you put them on oxygen and fix it, I got to figure out why they were at 89%. But here's the, here's the question well, I well, want to ask on. you. Let me, let, me, let me interrupt you real quick. First of all, uh, yeah, that 89% is the magic number because generally that's, that's the threshold for an admission um, uh, via the Medicare uh, rules and regulations. That, that usually can justify a hospital admission. But those patients with an, with an 89% uh, oxygen saturation look entirely different 
than the guy with an oxygen saturation of 84% or 70% or 50%. And, and, and it takes me, it takes me 20 seconds to get a pulse oximeter. I'm not going to change their oxygen saturation from 70% to above that 89% threshold in 20 seconds, even with, with high flow oxygen and bagging the patient. So that sort of thing is, okay, you partner, you get a pulse oximeter, get some vital signs. I'm going to go ahead and put CPAP on this patient. You know, right. I'm not going to wait. So let so, me ask you this question, Kelly. So I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think that we mm -hmm. put too much emphasis in numbers, right? So for the mm -hmm. people who are out there that haven't been able to make this transition yet, what tips do you have for them to move them forward in their assessment skills to feel more comfortable with treating the patient and not worrying about the numbers? Well, uh, there's a couple things. Number one, teamwork speeds the process dramatically. And, and, and it's amazing how teamwork, many... teamwork makes the dream work. That's right. Teamwork makes the dream work. And it's amazing how many paramedics out there uh, treat their EMTs as, as equipment sherpas and, and uh, you will be silent and speak only when spoken to. And, and uh, uh, EMT means every menial task and empty my trash. Um, and they've got a trained healthcare provider there that could make their job so much easier, um, but they don't utilize them except to, to do stupid things. Um, so, you know, part of my, my feng shui of, uh, of running a call is, is I gather history questions while my partner does assessments. Uh, my partner puts on the 12 lead EKG. My partner checks all the vital signs. My partner assesses lung sounds. And, and I have enough of a comfort and trust zone with Doug that when he says patients has expiratory wheezing or the patient has some consolidation, some crackles over the right middle lobe, I believe it. Uh, he's been right enough times that, that I can trust what he says. Uh, if something doesn't match the, the clinical picture I'm getting from history, well, I'll double check it behind him and he doesn't get bent out of shape out of that because he knows that's the way it goes. Um, but I don't have to, assessment doesn't have to be a linear process and, uh, um, a number of things can be going on at the same time. So uh, a good division of labor by your, by your, uh, between you and your partner speeds the process up considerably. Um, but all too often people will focus way much on numbers to the, to the uh, exclusion of clinical data and uh, or clinical picture. Um, that patient who is having severe difficulty breathing, uh, but has a respiratory rate of 18. Okay. You know, so what their respiratory rate is 18. Uh, maybe it's because they're on their way down. Uh, or a patient has a respiratory rate of 30, but their oxygen saturation is 100% and their lung sounds are clear and they're showing no signs of increased uh, respiratory effort. They're just tachypnic. Why is that? You know, uh, so every number has to have context behind it. And that's the, the emphasis I make is if you're a pediatric, if your seven-year-old pediatric patient is breathing 60 times a minute, um, but he has warm pink skin, he's unconscious, uh, and he's got these rapid deep respirations and there's no sign of intercostal retractions or, or, or sub, uh, sub diaphragmatic retractions. Uh, his respiratory mechanics are good, but the kid is unconscious. Maybe you need to check a blood sugar 
because he's probably not critically ill and unconscious because he's hypoxic. He's probably has two small respirations and he's, and he's in DKA, that sort of thing, you know? Um, so more context, uh, if the patient's oxygen saturation is a hundred percent, uh, and their CO2 level is, is within normal parameters or a little low when they're hyperventilating like that, it's not time critical that you put oxygen on the patient find out more about what's going on with it. Chris, how, how many EMTs have you encountered that were taught, well, when the respirations get above 28 or 30, you need to start bagging them, even well, I, if the patient is doing a good job of ventilating themselves? I don't want to I don't want to say how many EMTs. I, I don't even want to guess how too. many paramedics, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, have paramedics too because because unfortunately with the education level of of uh uh, of EMS uh, and, and the monkey see monkey do medicine that we teach in, in too many EMT classes. We, we do this if X, then Y, if A, then do B. And there is no context and, and clinical context and critical thinking going on. Do this intervention if, the, if it's outside these numbers. And that's one of the things that, that just uh, turns my crank as, a, as an educator and as a paramedic that I try to stomp out whenever I see it. So my, my focus and what I would tell the EMT who's sitting in, the, in one of my lectures is, is don't focus so much on numbers. There are times when numbers are meaningful. There are times when numbers are not. It doesn't mean that the numbers are more important, but sometimes the numbers are far less important than your treatment for the clinical picture of the patient. And, and, and gather information as best you can. And there is no such thing as knowing too much about a patient. Uh, you know, and, and there are times when, when even gathering the history takes a backseat to, to interventions. If my patient has exaggerated air hunger and two-word dyspnea, I don't need to talk to them right now. I need to be administering oxygen to them and relieving their respiratory difficulty. And they don't need to waste their breath on answering my questions. And that's one of those things where I will ask family members or I will, I will rely more heavily on technological assessment. Uh, and the fact that they can't speak will tell me uh, a great deal about their respiratory efficiency um, rather than, than uh, getting pulse oximeter numbers. And uh, uh, were you lying down when this happened? Can you lie down at all? How many pillows do you sleep on at night? When did this come on? Uh, and that sort of thing. When, I, when it's obvious from 10 feet away that the patient has acute pulmonary edema and CHF exacerbation, you know, I don't need to know if their feet swell like that all the time, if they look like sausages from the knees down. Right. Uh, so, but I think, but I think that, that that's, sort of stuff. But I think that that's telling the, you know, that's getting into the story. I mean, when you talk about your yeah. assessment skills, I believe that your assessment skills are the most important skill mm -hmm. that an EMT or paramedic has. It makes no yes, difference indeed. if you can intubate, makes no difference if you can start IVs, makes no difference if you can give, uh, you know, if you could do a drug calculation in your head, your assessment skills are the most important component. But it sounds like you're going to have a really, really great uh, lecture up there. But for everybody out there, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And of course, contact the Inside EMS team at the show at ems1.com to share your ideas, show suggestions, and give us some feedback, or if you just want to join as a guest. But Kelly, sounds like you're going to have a great time up there in upstate New York. I'm looking forward to it, man. This this kicks off the, the return from coronavirus, and hopefully, uh, you know, 2021 is, is, is going to have some live conferences this year after the, the year of the Zoom. 
uh, and I'm looking forward to that, man. I'm, I'm ready to get out with my tribe and, and share a little fellowship. And uh, even if we have to, to do it from six feet away with a mask on, um, I'm looking forward to it because this, this is what recharges my career batteries. Well, you know, aside from talking with you every week. Uh, um, but hey, that's what I think. We'd like to hear what you think. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. And for myself and co-host Chris Sabalero, we're going to catch you guys next week. <laughs>